This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We're taking a a sidestep from our typical exposition through the book of Acts. And as I said, today's message will be a topical one. If you brought your own Bible, then that's great. Uh, If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for Deuteronomy, I'm going to be in chapter 6, really for kind of a short time. Uh, But it's on page 141, 141 in that hardback black one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. In just a moment, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 which are the record of uh, the second time that the law is given. That's really what the book of Deuteronomy is named for. It's the second law, the Deuteronomas. It's the second giving of the law. But this small section here is a, is a time when Moses is saying to the people of Israel, uh, what he's kind of introducing what God has, has told him to teach to them. And he's calling them to both receive it and to live in light of it. Uh, This passage will serve as an Old Testament example, and then I'll cite New Testament examples and instructions for us as we go. But as I've already mentioned, today is a topical message on the Apostles' Creed. And what I want to start with, though, is even um, at the very beginning uh, with why we have creeds at all. Uh, What uses are there for creeds or confessions of faith? And and really even on the basic ground of uh, us all understanding that Christianity is a is a religion, a faith, a way of life that's based on true truth. So let me start as I as I often like to do by asking some questions of you. What is it that you believe that is distinctly Christian, not merely American or Texan? What beliefs do you hold that you have in common? With Christians who live in Afghanistan or China? How about Christians who lived a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago? What I'm really trying to ask you is what do you believe that is distinctly Christian? What do you believe that makes you a Christian? Not a non Christian, for example. Back in the 1950s, C.S. Lewis uh, is a, a popular author and Something of a theologian, though I use that term loosely in the case of Lewis. He was more of a scholar and a marvelous author than a precise theologian. But he he wrote a book called Mere Christianity in which he set forth an intelligent apologetic for what he thought were the basic beliefs of Christianity. He wasn't really interested in defining the beliefs that distinguished, you know, one Christian denomination from another, one Christian from another, one church from another, but rather summarizing those beliefs that are essential of the essence of what Christianity is. Those beliefs that divide Christian from non-Christian. He really wanted to articulate those things that would unite all Christians everywhere, regardless of their particular denominational affiliation. In fact, one of the things he says in the introduction that I found uh, kind of interesting and and funny to me for my uh, weird sense of humor, he said, the reader should be warned that I offer no help to anyone who is hesitating to trying to decide between two Christian denominations. You will not learn from me, he says, whether you ought to become an Anglican or a Methodist or a Presbyterian. Now, unlike Lewis, I'm very interested in strongly encouraging you that you should be a Baptist and not an Anglican, a Methodist or a Presbyterian. But I have nothing but love for my disordered brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe the same gospel, and therefore we are Christians together. My Methodist brothers and sisters, Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and even Anglican brothers and sisters in Christ, if indeed we do believe the same gospel. Though we have to be joined to different churches, that I lament, but I understand it to be a a real necessity. But talking this way about having fellowship, but a kind of fellowship that requires different uh, churches being joined by Christians... Well, this, this kind of talk, it, it implies and even kind of assumes uh, a, a, a necessary division among what, what doctrines we believe. It necessitates a sort of essential weight being placed on some doctrines that make us Christian brothers and sisters and a lesser 
importance or value being placed on other doctrines that are very important. They decide, they help us decide on what churches we can be a part of and which ones we could not, uh, but are of lesser importance. All right. This sort of talk, it necessitates kind of a, an undergirding of, of other uh, assumptions. Now, Lord willing, uh, I hope to dive into that a bit more in point number two in my message today. But I really want to start by doing a lot of front work for the remainder of this year uh, for our time of studying the Apostles' Creed. I want to do that because I understand that there might be some of us in the room who've never heard of a creed at all, who don't have the first clue about what the Apostles' Creed is. Some of us, though, maybe have grown up in churches where we recited the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed on, on a regular basis. And so we're familiar with these confessions, these creeds. Some of us may in the room even have an allergy for creeds. Why do we even need creeds? And some of us may cherish these historic creeds of Christianity. Some of us, as I mentioned at the opening of today's service, when we opened up the bulletin and we saw the Apostles' Creed there uh, uh, typed on the right-hand side, maybe some of us uh, glanced through, glanced over those words there and thought, you know, that's, that's really interesting. Maybe some of us saw those words and said, hey, wait a second. But what, why is that word there? Why is that one not there? And so because we all have sort of different, uh, we're, we're coming with different backgrounds, different experiences and different perspectives to the table. What I want to do is, is kind of set the table for the feast, the Lord willing, that we'll be able to enjoy over the course of this year. Uh, and to help us all to sort of start on the same page, to mix my analogies there. I pray that God would help us to gain as we study through the Apostles' Creed and, and even beginning to do that today that God would help us to gain understanding of the Bible as God's revelation of true doctrines, true teachings, Uh, that God would help us to gain in love for the God who has revealed such true truth, that God would help us to gain in humility and a desire to learn from those Christians who've gone before us, to not imagine that we're the first Christians ever to read the Bible and try to understand what it means, and that God would also help us to gain a resolve That we will aim this year, as with all years, to believe and to apply the truth that God has revealed. May God help us to do this together. Well, let's turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6. As I said, I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Would you mind standing with me for just a few moments as I read this primary passage for today? Standing is just one of the ways we try to show respect for God's word as we read this primary passage. I'll be reading, as I said, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, today, the main point that I would like to get across uh, is certainly a, a point that is um, revealed in this uh, passage that I've just read. But as I've been saying already, uh, just to just for uh, clarity's sake, uh, today is a topical message, not an expositional one. So we're not we're not going to a certain passage of the Bible and drawing out whatever we find there. Rather, what I'm trying to do is kind of reach from all over the Bible to bring together what I think what I believe to be a, a, the Bible's teaching on on this this uh, overarching point that I'm attempting to get across today. And that is that the Bible is God's revelation of true doctrines in opposition to false doctrines 
which we are to believe and to apply. As a matter of fact, I think this is one of the main points of the entire Bible. That the Bible aims at communicating, at teaching, revealing true doctrines, true teaching, true instruction. As opposed to all other instruction that is false and not true. And that these are, Bible's teaching of doctrine is what we are to believe and to apply. There'll be seven points. Uh, Point number two will be the lengthiest one, uh, visiting a subject called theological triage. But uh, here's the direction we're going for those who'd like to take notes. Uh, First, we'll look at what is doctrine. Point number two is aren't all doctrines important? Point number three is how do creeds relate to the Bible? Number four, what uses are there for creeds or confessions of faith? Number five, why the Apostles' Creed? Number six, which Apostles' Creed are we using? And number seven, doesn't doctrine divide? Well, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, as Cannonball Run used to say, so let's get going. What is doctrine? The word doctrine simply means belief or rule or teaching. So in Deuteronomy 6, the passage we've just read, it is the commandment or the statutes or the rules that the Lord your God commanded Moses to teach the people of Israel, to teach his people in verse 1. It's not only what the people of God are to believe, but it's also what they're to do. Verse 1 includes that as well. This is what they're to do in the land which they were going over to possess. Further, it's not only the teaching that was to govern God's, people, God's people's beliefs and actions, but it was also the content of what they were to teach diligently to their children. So they're to hear it, receive it, believe it. They were to do it, put it into practice themselves, and to teach it to those coming after them. That we see in verse 7. In fact, they were to teach it so diligently that they were to teach it in verse 7, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's all the time. It's a poetic way of saying all the time. They were to teach doctrine so diligently that it would be as familiar as their hand. This is verse 8 and 9. As familiar as their hand, that it would identify them as much as their own face, and that it would be as comfortable as going home. Doctrine was to be familiar to them. And the aim or the result of receiving and doing and teaching according to this doctrine or instruction is there in verse 2. So that you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. That is that you who are alive right now will learn to fear God and so will those who come after you. This is the point, the reason, the motivation, the purpose for which this doctrine is to be believed and practiced and taught. Now, this is the biblical pattern throughout both the Old Testament and the New. So the New Testament uh, explicitly commands Christians to learn and to teach good or sound doctrine in keeping with the instruction of the Old Testament. Uh, Both are the same on this idea. So, for example, to Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote, Follow the pattern of sound words. I'm reading from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 now. Uh, he's telling this, this young preacher, of uh, apprentice of his, that he is to follow the pattern of sound words, sound teaching, sound instruction that you have heard from me, Paul said. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, teach and urge these things, that is sound doctrine. And if anyone teaches a different doctrine, that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he understands nothing. So see, the the teaching of the New Testament is teach sound words. And if you hear someone not teaching sound words, but teaching false words or false doctrine or unsound doctrine, well, understand that person doesn't know what he's talking about. To Titus, another young pastor, Paul wrote something similar. Titus chapter two, verse one, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus and Timothy are the, are the um, quintessential pastors uh, of the New Testament. So the Apostle Paul is writing these, two, these three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. These three New Testament letters are written to pastors. So in sum, the pastoral responsibility in local churches is to teach sound doctrine. Very much like what we read from Moses' responsibility with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So doctrine then, if we're to answer the question, what is doctrine? Well, it's the content of Christian belief. It's the stuff Christians believe, which necessarily impacts what Christians do. It's the substance 
of biblical truth. But not all doctrines carry the same weight. Some are of the essence of Christianity and others are not. So this gets us into point number two. And in a day and age when many evangelical churches are seeking to kind of steer clear of, of requiring their uh, uh, participants to use their minds, their brains, uh, and after a holiday weekend when you've probably gotten less sleep than normal, I am going against the grain and asking you to put on your thinking caps with me this morning and follow along. Uh, so especially in point number two, though all the points necessary, or will be necessary for you to keep your heads about you. Uh, but point number two is going to be one where I'm really going to ask you to think a little bit with me. So aren't all doctrines important? Well, on, on the one hand, I want to answer that question by saying, yes, of course they are. All doctrines are important. If indeed all doctrine, doctrine itself in the Christian context is what the Bible teaches about stuff, then it is the truth of God. So all true doctrines are of great importance because they are the very summation of what God teaches about a thing. And so the doctrine of God is important because it's what God says about himself, summarized all throughout the Bible. The doctrine of the church is important because it's what God says about what a church is and what a church does. So all scripture, the Bible teaches us, is the sum and substance of the words that have come from the very mouth of God. And insofar doctrine is true, it is the summary of what God has said. And therefore it is important. But not all doctrines are essential. So there's a difference between being important and being essential. It's important that I have arms and legs. It's not essential to life that I have arms and legs. Not all doctrines are essential. Uh, there's a, a phrase that we've used many times uh, here at FBC Diana, and it's not unique to us. In fact, uh, Dr. Al Mohler, the guy who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, has been there for uh, more than three decades uh, and is a, a, a wonderful uh, churchman. Uh, he, I think it was him, who coined the phrase theological triage, which essentially joins two ideas, theology and the, the art or practice of diagnosing how serious is this injury in the emergency room. Uh, that's what triage is. It's assessing someone's situation to find out, does this person need to be bumped up on the priority list or can they wait and wait and wait for six or seven hours in the emergency room? A theological triage, uh, what it tries to do is, is take this idea of, of triaging the situation. How serious is the situation? And bring it into the theological realm. How serious is this theological point? Is this doctrine one that is essential to Christianity? Is this one that is important but not essential? Is this one on which Christians can disagree and still be friends with each other? You guys get the point. Uh, first level doctrines, uh, as Al Mohler has described them, are those doctrines that divide Christians from non-Christians. So to, to disbelieve or to not believe, to not adhere to a first-level doctrine is to take oneself out from underneath the umbrella of Christianity. Uh, so you can call yourself whatever you want, but you're believing or, or not believing something that takes you out from underneath what is historic Christianity. Examples of this, there'd be many, but here's some examples. Uh, the triunity of God, that God, God is one in essence, but three in person, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true divinity and true humanity of Christ. That Christ is both truly God and truly man. This is essential to, Christian faith, to the Christian faith. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. Looking to Jesus as the one who has died in the place of guilty sinners, that the Father has poured out his wrath that sinners deserve on the Lord Jesus Christ, even though Jesus was innocent, that he was counted guilty on behalf of all those who would place their trust in him. Incidentally, those things that are essential to Christianity, you'll, you'll probably, as you think through them a little bit, you'll recognize those things that are essential to Christianity are those things that are at the very heart and core of the gospel. Because the gospel is the very core of what Christianity is. And so maybe you're here this morning and you, you've, you've heard different people say different things and maybe you're trying to, to understand what is it that really is the heart of Christianity. Well, the heart of Christianity is much less... Uh, do this and don't do that, uh, though there certainly are moral uh, laws and ethics that we should, we should abide by. But the heart of Christianity is much less about what you do or don't do and who Christ is. 
and who you are in relationship to him. Uh, So the Bible teaches that God is good, but that we are not. That God has uh, judgment and wrath for anyone or anything who disobeys. And what God has done is despite how guilty and horrific we are as disobedient sinners, that God has shown love and mercy and grace uh, more so than we could ever imagine in sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we haven't, to die underneath the, the penalty that we deserve, God's wrath being poured out on him, and to conquer death, showing that all that, the, that God has, has uh, flexed as far as the curse of sin in the world, that Jesus has absorbed it all and that he has begun to roll it back. And that one day he will finish that job and the consummation of all that God has promised in the gospel will be the possession of all those who love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, the good news of Christianity. And those doctrines that are essential to that story, to that core belief or understanding of what God has done to reconcile, to redeem, to save guilty sinners like us through Jesus Christ, uh, this then is what is essential to Christianity as a whole. These are first level doctrines. Second level doctrines are those doctrines that divide one local church from another. So as I was talking about before, uh, with regard to baptism, Presbyterians believe something different about what baptism is than what Baptists do. Uh, That doesn't make them non-Christians, Presbyterians, but rather it does. It it does mean, though, that we we have to decide at the end of the day, uh, if we're going to church together, are we going to baptize only those who are uh, conscious believers or are we going to baptize both believers and unbelievers or non-believers? The Presbyterian answers that question by saying, yes, we are going to baptize both believers and their children who don't yet believe. Uh, but a Baptist says, no, we, we can't. A, a baptism is only for those who believe. And in order to church together and to actually baptize together, we have to answer that question in a united way. So Presbyterians and Baptists don't have to fight each other. At the end of the day, it would be uh, inconsistent for a Baptist and a Presbyterian to try to plant a church together uh, because they would have disagreements on some of the basic understanding of what a church is and who should be a part of it. So the authority of Scripture, what baptism is, what church membership is, what the Lord's Supper is, these are second-level or uh, second-tier doctrines. They are important. So important that we would, uh, I would have to leave a church that decided we're going to baptize both believers and their children. Oh, that's not something I can do uh, by my own conscience as I understand the Bible to teach. Uh, so these don't have to divide Christian brothers and sisters, but they do cause us to have to church differently. Third level doctrines are those doctrines that divide one Christian perspective from another without necessarily dividing Christians or even local churches. So these are those doctrines that we can have a different perspective of that doesn't have to cause us to have to church differently. Uh, so there can be church members who church together, who assemble together, who gather together, who are following Christ together, who are discipling one another, and yet who have differing beliefs about the specifics of eschatology. This is always an easy one to point to because there are, uh, there are three, at least three, main views of, of Christian views of eschatology. That is how the end times will unfold. Just exactly when will Christ return? Uh, what exactly is the millennium? Uh, will there be uh, one resurrection or more than that? Uh, these are questions upon which uh, Christians uh, can disagree, uh, but we don't have to break fellowship over. It seems to me that uh, any Christian who would aim to break fellowship over this is, is taking this doctrine and trying to push it further up on the priority scale than is necessary. We don't have to build any fences or divide Christian brotherhood. But discussion of such doctrines, these third level doctrines, can help us grow a lot. Now, they can help us grow in what it is we actually believe. Now, they can help us press against those, those areas of our own theological understanding that, that maybe we haven't thought through as much. And someone who disagrees with us can help us probe those areas a bit better. Anyway, much more could be said on that. Uh, there's, there's a fourth level that I want to bring in today that, that Moeller does not. Uh, So he mentions these three. I want to bring in a fourth because I think it's good for us to be reminded that there are some doctrines, some teachings, really some applications of of teachings from Scripture that that really uh, don't have a clear imperative at all. Uh, So there there might be some things. In fact, uh, oftentimes these these what I'm calling fourth level doctrines or really fourth level applications of doctrines, they often carry along with them the most emotional fervor but they're the least clear stuff we find in the Bible. 
I could use various examples, but uh, one that we have at least enough distance so it's not going to be too offensive today, but maybe a little. Uh, and that is on the subject of alcohol. So not uh, at least uh, within the last 50 years or so, and probably even a much more recent time, uh, Baptists in America have been those who have said that not only is drinking alcohol totally sinful and off limits, but so too is the possession and, and sale of alcohol. Uh, that's even something that was codified in uh, the earliest confession, or the uh, earliest uh, membership covenant of FBC Atlanta. One of the widest, uh, widest adopted confession, uh, membership covenants of Southern Baptist churches includes the prohibition of possessing, selling, indulging in alcohol at all. But you just won't find any clear teaching in the Bible on specifically drinking or selling alcohol. You'll find many prohibitions against drunkenness. This is something that's clear in the Bible. We ought not be drunk. We ought not be drunk with strong drink or wine. These are things that we should not do. But there is no clear mandate in Scripture to drink or not drink, to sell alcohol or not sell alcohol. So for those of us who have strong convictions over something that doesn't have a clear and explicit teaching in the Bible, I think it's good for us to be reminded that there are some convictions that we have that we, cer- we certainly shouldn't go against our own conscience. So I'm not saying that you should adopt my conscience on what view of alcohol I have. But I'm saying with whatever your own conscience is, we shouldn't try to foist that onto others, demanding that others align with what our belief is on this very narrow particular conviction that we have with no explicit command from Scripture. To do so would be the very, the very epitome of legalism. To create a law that the Bible does not have and to try to bind someone else's conscience to do that, that's legalism. And that is the worst form of fundamentalism. We ought to give, I think, uh, charity and grace where God gives us all liberty. I think that it would be very helpful for us to practice this sensible art of theological triage. It'll help us to enjoy real unity as Christians, as a local church. It'll make our unity real and not just the, the absence of infighting. We'll know what things actually unite us in those areas where we don't, we don't have to have perfect unanimity among our congregation. It'll help us to know why we church with one another and not with Diana United Methodist Church, for example, or Macedonia Apostolic Church here in Diana. So why do, why do we church together? Theological triage will help us to answer that sort of a question. But some of us might still be wondering, why in the world do we need a creed at all? I mean, don't we just have the Bible and uh, don't, don't, don't creeds, uh, isn't that trying to add something to Scripture? How exactly do creeds relate to the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked, and that's point number three. I told you two was the longest. The rest hopefully will be a bit shorter. Uh, some might say, though, and as we get into point number three ha- here, uh, I have no creed but the Bible. We don't need creeds. And to that, I want to say, hey, I love the priority and emphasis that that person is giving to the Bible. Indeed, the Bible does have priority over anything else we might say or think. If and when we come across a a creedal statement, a confession of faith, if and when we think or say something that doesn't line up with the Bible, the Bible is the ultimate court of arbitration. The Bible is the ultimate authority. The Bible is what says what is actually true and what is not. Not our creedal statement, not whatever we might think or want to be true. But the very statement, no creed but the Bible, betrays a misunderstanding about what creeds are and what the Bible teaches. In fact, the statement, no creed but the Bible, is itself a creed. So to anyone who's ever told you no creed but the Bible, they've just told you one of their creeds. And they've, they've uh, contradicted the very statement they've just given. It's a summary of what they believe is true that uses language not found in the Bible. The Bible doesn't include the word creed. And the Bible doesn't include the English word, the Bible. It's a made summary of belief. The Bible itself contains creeds and teaches us to hold to them. This might surprise some of you, so I encourage you to follow along with me. I'm going to go to two books and three passages. So two books. The first book is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, includes an early church creedal statement. Notice here 
if you're flipping there, you'll notice it, or you can just uh, trust me as I read it out to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth that he has delivered to them as of first importance, so he's putting priority on this doctrinal statement over others, what he also received. So it was a, it was a concise statement, a summary of, of doctrine, of teaching, of instruction that has priority over other stuff, and he's now delivered it on to them. What was the content of that instruction that he had received, that he was now delivering, that had priority? What's there in verses 3, 4, and 5? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. He recites this brief summary of Christian belief in a creedal statement. And he tells them this is something that he's received this content of Christian faith, and it is of high priority, of first importance, and he's now delivered it to them. This is an example in the Bible of a creedal statement. And there's another in that same book, so 1 Corinthians, we're not leaving there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. This is, as I understand it, the earliest and shortest creed of all of Christianity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is teaching the church in Corinth to distinguish between true converts and false ones. And in chapter 12, verse 3, he points to this confession, this creedal statement, and he says that only those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit can confess Jesus is Lord. Now, that might not sound like a very profound statement to us today. Jesus is Lord. But in first century Christianity in the Roman Empire to claim that Jesus is Lord was a direct usurpation of the authority of Caesar. Caesar is Lord was the Roman summary of theological belief. Who is Lord? Who is king? Who is ruler? It's Caesar. Christians, though, would say Jesus is Lord. This was a massive paradigm shift, a huge and profound theological statement and a very short and powerful creed. Who is our Lord? Not ultimately Caesar, but Jesus. Jesus is Lord. There are also uh, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uh, various liturgical confessions or creeds. Uh, so these would be statements that apparently very likely were used in gatherings of Christians on the Lord's Day as kind of part of what they, would, what they would recite together or what would be recited to them as a sort of memory device to know what we believe. Uh, one of those is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. And I'm very tempted to have Micah uh, stand up and, and sing it out for us today. It's, a, it's one that's been put to tune and it's a lot of fun, but Micah doesn't want to do that, so I won't make him. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 it says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a summary of Christian belief, a, a doxological, a, a praise uh, to God, which itself is full of doctrinal truth and statements that God is the king of the ages. He is immortal. He is invisible. He is the only God. He's the one who, to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever. Uh, this is a powerful statement of belief. Uh, to those who would say that, uh, or who would ask, uh, why do we need creeds? Uh, well, let's just understand that, uh, that the word creed comes from a Latin word, credo, which sim simply means I believe. Uh, so it comes from the, the very first stanza of at least two of the early church creeds. The Apostles' Creed, which uh, was being recited at least as early as 200 AD, I'll argue for, I would argue for a little bit earlier, much earlier than that. Uh, but the very first stanza says, I believe in, the God, in God the Father Almighty. The Nicene Creed, which was formulated in 325, slightly edited in 381, says, we believe. So it's the, it's the opening word, and that's, the, that's where the word creed has come from. It's, it's what we believe. It's a summary of Christian belief. Uh, that's what creeds are. At their best, creeds are simply a summary of what the Bible teaches, what Christians believe. The creeds have served not only as a positive summary, but also as a, 
as a negative to, to say that we believe this and not that. Very often creeds have been produced in opposition to someone else's false teaching that's trying to be passed off as Christianity. And so Christians have responded by saying, no, we don't believe that. We believe this. Uh, But in summary of point number three, let me just say that we should understand that the Bible should be over creeds, but not exclude them. So the Bible over creeds, but not to the exclusion of them. The Bible is the norma normans non normata. The Bible is the rule that rules that has no rule. uh, That is, that has nothing ruling over it. So the Bible is the standard or rule that rules any other rule, that rules any other standard underneath it, but has no rule over the top of it. Creeds are the rules that are ruled. A creed's rule, creeds, if you think of creeds as something like uh, the, the sort of bumpers that you put in the bowling alley gutters, uh, you know, so that you don't gutter ball every single time you throw the ball down the lane. It helps keep things in the middle. Creeds provide that kind of railing for Christians to say, no, 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 we don't go over here and we don't go over here. The Bible teaches that stuff that's in between. Well, that's what creeds do. But creeds are always and ever to be ruled or regulated by Scripture, which is the ultimate authority over them. Most of us can probably already see many benefits and uses of creeds, but let me offer three really quick uh, quick ones in point number four. What what uses are there for creeds or confessions of faith? Uh, I'll list three uh, briefly, as I said. Uh, One, and in no prioritized order necessarily, uh, but one use can be to make clear and concise distinctions between groups. So I've already used the example of distinguishing between Baptists and Presbyterians. Well, the confessions of faith that distinguish Baptists and Presbyterians historically have been the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the Presbyterian Confession, and one of the earliest Baptist Confessions of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, both the first and the second publication of it. Uh, so these then uh, help to distinguish what a Baptist believe and what a Presbyterians believe. Almost the exact same stuff with some slight differences with regard to the church and especially baptism. But creeds, in the case of the Apostles' Creed, as we've said, as I've said already, distinguishes between Christian and non-Christian. So those who are Christians at least believe this stuff that's contained in the Apostles' Creed. Those who don't believe that stuff, at least it's in the Apostles' Creed, well, they, they again, they can call themselves whatever they want, but that's not Christian. Another use for creeds is to warn everyone of soul-destroying heresy. So if you're, if you're a new Christian... And you're, you're wanting to grow in grace and knowledge uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're reading your Bible and you're trying to understand what the Bible has to say. And there are a lot of foreign terms that you don't really understand. There are stories and characters that aren't familiar to you. It's very helpful to have a sort of summary, especially one as brief as the Apostles' Creed, to say, look, here are the basics of what the Bible teaches on these subjects. And if you'll understand that this is always true, Regardless of what you think that, ver- that verse means when you arrive to that verse or that passage or that story, if you think it means something other than what you're reading here, you've misunderstood that verse. You've misunderstood that passage. Let's get back on the line. Let's stay between those bumpers. So it, it warns everyone of not getting off the path. It warns everyone that if you get off the path, then that's devastating to your soul. You could be, you could be believing something that's actually going to kill you eternally. And so let's stay on the right path. So, for example, the Nicene Creed, uh, which was one, as I said before, was produced in 325 and edited and reproduced in 381. There was a specific portion of it. It basically took the Apostles' Creed and went a bit more precise on some stuff, especially on the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was one particular fellow who was saying that Jesus was like God, but that he was not the God. He was like the Father, but not of the same essence as the Father. And Christians, for a time, thought, well, that that sounds right. The Son is different, is distinct in some way from the Father. And so maybe maybe what this guy Arian is saying, maybe it's right. For a time, there were most Christians in the world thought, I think think Arian is probably right. Uh, But there was one uh, pastor, bishop in particular, named Athanasius who said, no, Arius is not right, uh, and, and this, is, this is unacceptable, and you all need to understand what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. That Jesus is the God. That he is of the same essence as the Father. The longer story is more enjoyable than the short version. 
But the, the result that was produced was the Nicene Creed, when Christianity at the time and in, in the world at that time came together and affirmed, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, and the most precise statement of all, of the same essence as the Father, seeking to make clear what Christians believe about the Son. So a second use of creeds is to help warn of soul-destroying heresy. A third use, and really the use that I'm aiming for for us this year, is to teach converts, both new and old, what they are to believe. So as I said before, having a sort of summary for what Christians believe can help you kind of have an on-ramp for all the things that I'm going to learn over the course of my lifetime as a Christian. What things do I need to grow in my understanding of? What are the truths I need to cling most tightly to? Creeds and confessions can help us to do that. So if you're a mature Christian, then you should be able, as you read through the Apostles' Creed, to at least basically explain why you believe the statements that that are affirmed in that creed. It's a summary of basic Christian belief. So if you think yourself a mature Christian, think about how you would go through that creed and describe, explain why you believe those things are true. Where would you turn in the Bible to explain that? If you're a new Christian, then you should be spending the bulk of your time trying to understand the basic teaching of something like the Apostles' Creed. And you should not be spending the bulk of your time trying to understand Daniel's weeks or Ezekiel's wheels. Those are really bizarre prophet, prophecies in Daniel and Ezekiel, by the way. Well, there's much more that could be said on uh, such a point, but uh, there are still some hanging questions with, uh, with a specific interest in the Apostles' Creed itself, the content of it. And this is going to get us to point number five. Uh, the last two points uh, are, should be very brief, so let's, let's just get to it really quickly. Point number five, which Apostles' Creed are we using? Well, the one that we're going to be using is the one that I've recorded in your bulletin. On the inside, to the right, you'll see this is the version that we're going to be using throughout our time this year. And maybe, Lord willing, it'll be something we'll recite together as a congregation uh, from this time forward as, as we go on, as, as occasion uh, provides the opportunity. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. It's important for us to remember that there's no single author of the Apostles' Creed. So there's not an Apostles' Creed that just pops up on the scene at one point in human history. Rather, these are the summary statements that lots of Christians were confessing informally in their own local churches at all sorts of times throughout human history. And I want to argue that probably as early as 30 or 40 years after the, the, death, of the Lord, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was the time when this started happening maybe even a bit earlier than that. But at least as early as 200 AD, one Christian theologian refers to something called the Roman Creed, which if you look at what was referred to as the Roman Creed, it's very similar to the Apostles' Creed. And so I think that the two are really one and the same, just kind of different versions of the same same thing. Uh, So if you think about there are different ways of reciting the same information sort of all over Christianity, uh, and the primary way that this is being done is through the, the baptismal confession of new converts. So imagine it happening like this. Uh, the question would go, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? Yes. Do you believe in his one and only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord? Yes. And so on and so forth as you go down the creed at someone's baptism. That this would be, be the way that a new convert came into Christianity is by confessing the summary statement of what we believe as Christians. Each one of these ancient variations of the Apostles' Creed uh, do have slight variation, but with much commonality until 750 A.D. At 750 A.D., there's a standardized way 
of reciting the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but all of the ones before then were very, very similar. The standardized way uh, has uh, uh, two specific differences from the way that we're going to be reciting it over the course of this year. And then I want to just give one brief explanation. The two differences uh, we'll go through in much greater detail. So I'm just, I'm just mentioning them here so you'll know, oh yeah, Mark knows that that's what is there. Uh, and that is, uh, the first difference is I'm saying we believe instead of I believe. I'm merely doing that for the, for the um, practice of us reciting it together as a congregation. Uh, so we congregationally will be reciting the Apostles' Creed and saying we believe this stuff rather than just I. Uh, because we as a congregation are believing this stuff together. Secondly, there is the exclusion of the phrase from the standardized version, the most common one that is recited today, that's found just after he was crucified, dead, and buried. The usual way that that's recited is there's another phrase that's inserted in there that says, he descended into hell. The very brief explanation for why I'm not including it in our version is, first, it's, it is uh, historically and provably not present in any one of the uh, confessions, the, the creeds of, of the Apostles' Creed, before the 600s. So all the versions that we have before then doesn't include the phrase. So it's not original to whatever the original versions were that were going around. Uh, two, it doesn't mean then what people often think it means today. So when someone says he descended into hell, it didn't mean the same thing by using that language back then as people would often understand that language to be today. And three, even given it the best interpretation, it's poorly placed. So you lose nothing by uh, removing it from the creed. And by keeping it in there, it causes all sorts of confusion and possibly even some really bad understandings. So that is uh, something that uh, is not allowed in the mentor house. And since uh, I'm the one who's organized us teaching through the Apostles' Creed this year, it's not allowed in our public confession of it either uh, because it's going to be unhelpful and uh, we'll be better off by reciting it this way. If you have questions about that, you want to think more about that, I'd be very happy to talk with you about that as soon as the service is, is over with. Uh, but one last brief explanation, and that is uh, there's the stanza or the phrase in there that says that we believe in the Catholic Church. Now, if you are a convictional Protestant like me and someone says that they believe in the Catholic Church, if you don't know what that word actually means, that might cause you to kind of twist your head a little bit. Hey, wait a second. I thought we were Protestants. I thought we were Baptists. And indeed we are. The word Catholic simply means universal. And so I wholeheartedly affirm the statement, we believe in the Catholic Church. We believe in the universal body of Christ from all ages and geographical locations. We look forward to that day when the universal body of Christ will be visible, visible before the Lord Jesus when he returns. Each one of those three would be possible questions that would arise. As I said, hope to dive into those more as time permits throughout the rest of this year. But if you'd like to talk more about this, we can certainly do that as the service dismisses. One last point, and that is to bring us back around to... Uh, sort of the application of, of today's message. It's been a lot of doctrine, a lot of information. So come on back around with me. If you've been falling asleep through the last little while, let's, let's reconvene. Doesn't doctrine divide? Mark, why would you want to be studying stuff like this? Uh, this seems so dry to some of us in the room. Why spend time on something like this? Well, sure, doctrine does divide. I think it divides inevitably and rightfully. Doctrine divides Christian from non-Christian. It tells us what we are to believe and what we're not to believe. It tells us how we are to live and how we're not to live. It tells us what we are to teach those who are coming behind us, how we're to encourage them to live, how we're to instruct them. So doctrine necessarily, inevitably, and rightfully divides. The Bible is the container of God's doctrine. And it tells us how we're to live and what we're to believe. And we are to believe it and apply it. But yes, sometimes those who study doctrine do become unnecessarily divisive. Sometimes those who study doctrine become unnecessarily divisive. Sometimes those who get a little bit of doctrine in their heads love being right. Love pointing out someone else's errors. They, they love being able to say something more than they love other people. And in so doing, they become incredibly divisive and really hard to be around, quite frankly. Churches and Christians have experienced just this kind of thing. 
And this is one of the main reasons why a lot of Christians just kind of steer clear of doctrine. Because, man, I, knew it, I know what that does. It, it causes disagreement. It causes fights. But, brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us that truth and love are always meant to go together. So in Ephesians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is teaching the Christians there in Ephesus about the purpose of the local church, he tells them this, that they, church members, are to speak the truth in love so that we all grow up in every way into him who is the head of the church, into Christ. And when each part of the church body is working properly, this makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If, if a good Christian brother or sister comes to you and says, hey, it's really hard to have theological conversations with you because they, they always end up being argumentative. Maybe you're being divisive. Maybe you're loving being right more than you're loving the person you're talking with. And think about how you might love doctrine and love that person. Think about how you might love the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and love the ones to whom you want to share it, with whom you want to share it. Indeed, doctrine divides inevitably. But doctrine also results in worship, in growth, and in unity. So speaking the truth in love produces growth, spiritual maturity, unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It produces worship. All of the doctrinal statements, the thick, rich doctrinal statements of the New Testament are followed by doxological praise, worship to God. So, for example, in Romans chapter 11, after a lengthy discussion of God's unfolding plan of salvation that is loaded with rich doctrine, the Apostle Paul breaks out into praise. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When you study doctrine, Seeking to know the God who is the author and revealer of that doctrine, you will know him better. And it will provoke in you a heart of worship and praise and adoration. May God help us to grow in love for him and in love for one another, even as we aim to study doctrine over the course of this next year. Would you bow with me and let's pray. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.